Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast where we talk about truth you can build your life on. We hope to dive into the hard conversations of life and faith and seek out reasonable, substantive answers. My name is Colson Lechner, and I am joined by Chris Sherrod, Chris Legg, and Brent Starnes. This is Reconstructed Faith. Welcome back to the Reconstructed Faith Podcast. My name is Colson Lechner. Alongside my partners in crime today is Bryn Starnes and Chris Legg. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey. Great. We are continuing our Q&A session. Uh, Bryn just put an Altoid in her mouth. So oh, don't, don't, don't blame don't. that on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, only Bryn did that, huh? Bryn put an Altoid in her mouth that Colson offered her after taking uh, his own. You also put a hand and, out. You, and, were, you, were, you were asking for an Altoid. Okay, it makes me laugh though because I feel like Colson puts in mints a lot like we're about to talk to someone who can smell our breath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To be honest, the reason why I do it is because I can smell my own breath <laughs> on this microphone. Wow. Um, we some, some confess today is confessions <laughs> episode. Yeah. That's right. I yeah, don't question really, and well. response and confessions. <laughs> and confessions. <laughs> yeah, today's episode is brought to you by Cinnamon Altoids. I just like the cinnamon. That's the only. Oh, I really hate cinnamon flavored. Things. Oh, don't like don't all don't. Cinnamon? Oh, yeah, cinnamon <gasps> smell like cin- like true cinnamon. Yeah, I like true cin- like cinnamon like, in a tea like tea oh, or yeah, coffee. Like, a cinnamon stick. Totally fine. Like actual cinnamon, fine. But cinnamon flavored things like cinnamon candles, just about. Like, oh, I just can't handle them. Really? They're just horrible. That's how I am about cherry. Anything that's cherry mm. flavored or scented, I can't handle. It reminds me like of cough syrup. Cough syrup, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even your, now, so do you not like cherry flavored cough syrup? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just checking. Oh, just checking. Is it a cherry thing or is it a, a cough syrup <laughs> thing? And, and I've still never found anything cherry flavored that tastes anything like cherries. Yeah, that's the problem. I feel like I've been lied. That was when I, as a kid, there were two big moments when I realized I was being lied to. And that was that grape flavored things don't taste like grape. Right. And I realized like, oh, they taste like this is purple flavored. Right. And this is red flavored and this is blue flavored. Right. Like, they have nothing to do with the color this that they're connecting This is what the chemist of America want me to taste <laughs> when I think of cherry. Yep. So that was that was one of them. The other one was when I discovered you could order your own trophy without any oversight. <laughs> that was when I was like, it's all a lie. It's I've worked so hard for this little trophies and I could have just gone and bought one anytime. Anyone can do that anytime. That's what the trophy signifies. Oh my gosh. Chris. Like I'm so like... I could go buy first place on anything I want and just send it up. <laughs> and you're like, just like, Chris no one like, would know. It's <laughs> like as a child with a magazine. Yes, I'd like uh, four. <laughs> four first place trophies. <laughs> I'm just picturing this huge, it's like a teaching thing, but it's like in your house, this massive trophy room. Trophy room. Oh my room. gosh, you've done all these things? Like, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, I designed them and then I bought them. <laughs> I, you know, I did. I didn't know you won a Nobel Prize. It's like, exactly. Well, well yeah. Turns I, out you can buy one of those too. This year, I think I did a great job at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man. Anyway, sorry. Well, so that's, those topic. are our con- those are our confessions. That's right. But we've got a few more questions to respond to. We do. Um, some good ones too. Yeah. Some of them are related to kind of sexuality, spirituality. Some are just about uh, some kind of things Bible we, translation things, just yeah. random things that we've mentioned. And so I'm going to jump into the first one. Um, and that the question says, I think of God as a spirit without gender, but considering that God's primary role in our lives is father, it seems logical that he would be referred to with a masculine pronoun. Furthermore, what options did the writers have other than he, she, or it? So Excellent. I guess the first things which we've done in the past is what, what potential assumptions 
right? Could you be could be read into or out of this question, yep. uh, and addressing those, and then kind of addressing the question as well. Good, good, yeah. Well, we got a lot of different directions to go with this one, I think. Yeah. Um, so one, let's start with God is spirit without gender. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think about that? Jump out there. I mean, I, God is the creator mm-hmm. of gender. I feel like in the Bible, when it talks about him in the masculine form, it's as if he's relating to us. Okay. Rather than just saying, I am a man. Right. Um. So... Well, and I think it is good, like we've talked about in the past, of differentiating between the terms gender and sex. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it, what this person may be saying, it seems as I think of God as a spirit without a sex. Like there meaning you go. he's not biologically male. Yeah. Which I think is <clears throat> accurate. That is accurate. Because he's not, I mean... He has no genetic encoding at all that right. we could comprehend, at least, right? Right. But if you're saying... There's not an expression of male or femaleness, yeah. then that would be more complex. Yes, good. I'm wow. so proud. That's <laughs> such a great yeah, way to way to jump on that. That's nice, really good. <laughs> so I'm sad through a few of Chris's yeah. just gender and sex classes. Several, several. I'm gonna need to listen back to this podcast and kind of yeah. We, it might be back. good to post which yeah. ones those are. But yeah, I so I have for years since I've started studying it, and since it became an issue when I didn't mm-hmm. need to study until it was. So I do think sex is <clears throat> is binary in that it's male and female. Now, I, I know there are specific disorders that can make that not go the way it's supposed to go genetically. Super, super rare. And though it's a disorder, it's like any other disorder that could happen biologically to a human being born missing a heart or or a limb or like the, some genetically something went wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, but even in those cases. Um, so, yeah, that's but sex is biological, in my opinion, strictly, purely, 100%, completely biological. Sex is male, female. And that is how God created us, male and female. Mm-hmm. Genesis <clears throat> 1. 1, yep, yep. 27. Mm-hmm. Um, male mm-hmm. and female, he created them, right? So, so and, and by the way, in his image. So male and femaleness somehow wraps up the how he created them in his image in mm-hmm. an interesting way. Um but we do know the, the the writer of the question is right. God is a spirit. That is true. Um, that's very clear. John 4, 26 and several other places reference that he is a spirit. Therefore, he must be worshiped in spirit and truth. Like it's, like he, God is spirit. Now, um, God took on human flesh and the care and the nature of man and experienced life as a human being in, in Jesus Christ did. So that's mm-hmm. Jesus Christ experienced life with the male sex. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's that, that is true. Jesus Christ was male. And so but it would be silly to say he was male and female or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what a great point that you're making that if gender is a sociocultural construct that is meant to tell us what sex you are, then there are certain patterns that go with that and certain assignments that we give to that. There are traits that we say, this trait is more masculine. This trait is more feminine. Now, it may change culture to culture, but it is definitely there. Like, there's certain mm-hmm. things there, right? So, yeah, so you could have God having a gender in that he carries with it, He carries with him certain traits or portrays certain traits that especially in the Jewish culture where he's introducing himself, he more naturally aligns with many of the masculine traits, or at mm-hmm. least in their mind he did, right? Um, and he does refer to himself 
as Matt with the masculine trait. Again, I think that has nothing to do with whether he wears boxers or briefs. That's not what that's about, right? Mm-hmm. It's it is pure. It's not about his XY chromosome situation. It is purely being that he is connecting with the some of the paternal masculine traits that we connect there. I I totally agree. So I, I think you're also that's that's also good, Colson, that he's relating to us in a way that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? Now, <clears throat> that being said, I think that God portrays both genders well. Mm-hmm. Um, God has feminine traits as well. God has f- paternal traits and he has maternal traits, mm-hmm. as do all of us, right? I mean, like there are, I hope I have a lot mm-hmm. of the virtues that my wife has as a mother. I hope I'm also can be some of the, and so our culture, for example, divides out I don't know, strong, aggressive, those kind of things, typically masculine, nurturing, cherishing is typically feminine. Mm-hmm. There's no standard for that. It's not like right, you can go right. to the Bible where those passages is there. Um, but that doesn't let me, the fact that I'm a man doesn't let me off the hook of being compassionate and nurturing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just because they're feminine traits. I still need to have those traits. Well, God, in my opinion, perfectly exemplifies all virtues, whether our culture links the masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. And so, and he, even in scripture, there's like some, some traits that are marked, marked very specifically uh, female, meaning like comparing himself to a hen. Yeah. You got your Bibles handy? You do a little ready for a little Bible drill? I'm ready. All right. Isaiah 49, 15. Okay. And then, uh, Brent, since you referenced it, Luke 13, 34. So you got the Isaiah one there for us, Colson? Yeah, I'm getting it into in my preferred <laughs> Oh, that's the next question. That's right. No one of our other questions, but. Okay. Let's hear Isaiah 49, 15. Hold on a second. Wow. My Bible, uh, my Bible drills are better than yours. <laughs> you are. It's, I'm, I'm just kidding. My typing is We're not good. <laughs> That's say, what I'm saying. Can't spell Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah 49, 15. Let's start there. Yep. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So God is not only showing the maternal trait of cherishing his children, but he's better at it than a nursing mother would be. Mm. Before you go from Isaiah, do 66, 13 as well. And these are just spot. But you, I mean, you got mm-hmm. dozens these, of you're these. Just pulling yeah, these. I'll pull out. a few of these real quickly from okay. a list I got. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Okay. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. There you go. Okay. So again, he's relating himself to a mother, like straight up relating himself to a mother. Mm. How about the Luke 13, 34? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Yep. So there you go. He is, is the word longing in there? How long, how I longed to gather you? Mm. How this, the ESV says, how often would I have? Would I have? Okay. Mm. Um, So he exemplifies the traits of men and women and chickens. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point. Everything is perfect. He does everything perfect. That's right. If it's a virtue, he, he has does it, it. Yeah. whether it's a chicken's virtue or a man's <laughs> virtue or a, that's actually, you could actually make that case probably, but it is a, <laughs> yeah, it is sorry, a if sorry. it's a virtue, he He's has got it, it and he's mm-hmm. got it perfectly. And so yeah. he exemplifies the maternal traits, the feminine trait, the feminine and maternal virtues perfectly as mm-hmm. God. 
Um, and he exemplifies the mater- the paternal and masculine virtues perfectly as God. Um, and so he becomes the disciple maker for all of us. No matter which sex we are, we can learn our virtues from him. Um, and I think that's part of what it means to be created in his image, male and female, is that is that the ultimate expression of both of male or of female is still found in his image. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. That, and that he owns both, like the yeah. image is his and therefore, mm-hmm. the possession is his of male and female. So, right. so it's not like women are like, well, I, don't, I have nothing to aspire to now. Right. Right. That's totally. A, that would be that. very silly and an inaccurate way of engaging. Yeah. That. So there is God's, I don't know that I would agree with the phrase that God's primary role in our lives is father. I think his primary role is probably God. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not in competition. That's not like it's one, not the other. Um, but Father, King, Lord, Master, Friend, Savior, yeah. you pick them all. And I think he has all of them perfectly. So then when we see, but I think when it comes to pronouns in the Bible, we do see him, we refer to God as him and he. Mm-hmm. So is that primarily a translation choice or the writers of scripture primarily describe him as he? Um, like as a masculine? I think it's both. Um, and that God refers to himself as a he. Right. <clears throat> and so God uses he to refer to himself. So we have to, we need to honor that. Um, I've always thought, I think we've joked about that once before on the podcast, that I was someplace where the preferred pronoun conversation was going on. And yet also somebody being offended that God was a he, <laughs> like they got, it was like, so everybody else gets to pick their pronoun <laughs> except, except God. God. God is the one person who doesn't have the authority to pick their own pronoun. But yeah. Um, so what does it mean that God refers to himself as a heathen? A heathen? No, a heathen. A he, a he, <laughs> comma, then. He, comma. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it just is him, like Colson was saying, it's him relating to the culture that he's talking to. Mm-hmm. And it would be natural that they would assign a he to a character of God, a leader, a king, a lord, mm-hmm. a master, mm-hmm. an owner. These were all things that males were and that females weren't mm-hmm. for the most part. And so... I think that's part of it. I don't think it tells us anything about his, obviously it doesn't tell us anything of his biology because he doesn't have a biology. Right. Um, and I don't think it tells us anything about his prioritization. I, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think it could have mm-hmm. been. So, so when I say it could be a translational thing, sometimes it is also, so it's not just translational thing, just so you'll know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although there even is in some of our modern translations, a bias towards the masculine. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of human literature is that, when you say mankind, you don't mean males. Mm-hmm. You right. mean um, amen or a woman. That, that's right. And so <laughs> a, you said amen yeah, at amen. the end of a prayer. And a woman. And a woman. Um, yeah, that has nothing to do with that either. So that's yeah. a, um, but to say, uh, like a lot of times in the New Testament, when we're reading where it says brothers, mm-hmm. that, that that's actually a gender neutral term. Mm-hmm. And it just means relative. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, or the maternity, uh, the, sorry, the masculine phrase is used for both males and females, right. like in mankind. Right. And so I think there's a t- there are times when we overemphasize where we just translationally, culturally, whatever, have kind of overdone the male-female thing sometimes. it's I, I'm, I, I think fundamentally, honestly, Brent, I think it just comes down to the fact that it's not meant to be a huge deal. Right. Um, you know, when you have the Apostle Paul later saying there is no male and female, slave or Greek. Um, mm-hmm. Jew or Greek, slave or free. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mean they don't exist. Right. It's he means it's, not, it's the... not a significant Galatians 3, mm-hmm. um, 28. But it's that 
It's that this is not what defines us. Right. This is not how we identify ourselves. I think it's I think it's wild that you have the Apostle Paul saying straight up that identity is found in Christ, not in sex, not in socioeconomic status, and not in mm-hmm. um, race. race or ethnicity. And yet we watch right now our culture fighting so hard against that to say no. Yeah. It's it's actually when we talk about it when we do our segment on politics, it struck me. How, many, how often I heard people referencing, like, um, in some of the political conversations in the last election, like, how women voted, or how this ethnic group voted, or how yeah. this, and it, and it divides into these groups, mm-hmm. and how many Christians voted, I'm curious, I'd love to know, there's no way to know, like, how many of them voted as a woman over Christian, mm-hmm. yeah. or as a man over Christian, or as a... Uh, an African-American over-Christian or as a Caucasian over-Christian. Like, mm. where is your ultimate loyalties lie? Yeah, that determine those decisions. Those, yeah, yeah. And, and for a Christian, that always is supposed to be our faith. Our relationship to God trumps all of those others. Like, it oh, totally overwhelms them, all the other identity things that say, you know, I don't, I, I don't vote primarily as anything that describes me except Christian. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, or act or serve or choose my career path or uh-huh. pick it, you know, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, that's a side conversation. But so what what is the accurate statement here when it comes to if someone said, well, is God a man? Then to say God is describes himself in the masculine, in the masculine. Right. It's like the most correct way of saying that's that the way think. I would say. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he uses the masculine pronoun for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and masculine terms for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's you. The minute you start making much of that, you've probably overinterpreted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think he did that in order to teach us something special about his character or his identity. Yeah. Um, or to oppress women. Certainly not that. I mean, that would yeah. be totally outside of the box. So, right. um, it, it it may be. I think that what we're supposed to take from that maybe is that he is the father. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have these maternal traits that are that he also is the exemplar for mother, just as he is the exemplar for father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, he can he, he connects with us. I think you could unpack that some in some ways, but um, I think very quickly you begin mm-hmm. to find yourself in a hole that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because I feel like you could you could extrapolate it even more. Well, why didn't he come as a woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then it's like. Then you have a whole, I mean, a gamut of mm-hmm. cultural things you could then jump into. Right. Yeah. And all that. So, And there are things, like as a side note, there are some some of your talks on gender, like the difference between gender and sex and gender and culture and all those things. There are some um, talks on our website where you unpack that more if people are Absolutely. curious to hear more about that. But mm-hmm. okay. We ready okay. for our next yeah, question? Yeah, let's, let's go into our next one. Um, this kind of, uh, carries on, um, from like, yeah, let me see. Sorry. I took some notes. This one is, I was very, <clears throat> excuse me. I was very surprised in the episodes about adultery in the Bible that you did not reference Jesus's interactions with the woman caught in the act of adultery. It seems like he really let her off the hook. I just <laughs> figured you wouldn't dodge such an interesting passage. Wink, 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 wink. Now, That's I, know, there I, in the thing I know that this was brought to our attention um, in a, in a joking way, but I was like, Oh, that's actually a totally valuable thing to ask and to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And some of when we were talking about adultery, we were talking about it 
and the seriousness of mm-hmm. how it's impacted others deconstruction mm-hmm. and right. how it's, if we're emphasizing other sexual sins over adultery, like I think that was yeah. a lot of the yeah. context, right. yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a good point. Cause we didn't, as far as I know, yeah, we didn't we did. reference. No, we, we, did. we definitely did not. So this is John eight is what's being referenced, which the, the woman caught in adultery. We have is, referenced John 8 before. We have, because that is often a passage that is pulled out of, or is it's an argument, correct, of like, well, it's, I'm like digging myself into a hole. It's not, it's <laughs> not, in, the earliest, it, it's yeah. not in the earliest manuscripts. There you go. Good. And That's so a good way to say it. When, when things are brought up, like arguments against faith in God, I right. feel like, or I don't know. I'm I'm kind of treading water here. Yeah, I hear you. But at what? I guess. What is the context that we brought it up in the past? So when we discussed it in the past was in regards to um, is kind of the question of is what we have what they wrote, mm-hmm. and and is That's what right. we have with the Bible, and is the Bible that we have in front of us is it what the original authors wrote? How much change has happened? And we talked about how we can't possibly know. Uh, in some cases, how much change would have happened between, say, let's say, you know, John wrote the book of John in AD 60. We don't know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but let's just say AD 65. That's mm-hmm. just a guess. Maybe AD 75. Yeah. Um, and the oldest copy we have, let's say, some people say we have fragments from as much as close as 20 years later, but that's that's pushing it. Let's say that that, that it's around 100 years later. So what did any translational, were there any decisions made, any copying mistakes made, any whatever between the original copy, AD 60, and say AD 160. I'm totally making up that number. I have no idea what our most ancient right, copy right, of John right. is. Don't hear him saying yeah, that that's, that's not, what it I'm is. I'm not saying that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> but, so we just, and we don't know. And so some some debaters like Bart Ehrman really focus their attention there is, but how much change happened in those hundred years? And the answer is, well, we can't, okay, uh, uh, granted, we don't know. Right. We do know, though, there is this really good, like you can work your way backwards. Anytime you're doing a, a, like if I drove from here to Alabama and you could trace backwards nine of those 10 hours, mm-hmm. you have a pretty good idea. You have a pretty small range of where I came from mm-hmm. with that last hour, right? And so we can work our way backwards translationally through thousands of copies of the book of John. Yeah, we don't have the first, again, I don't know what it is. Let's pretend like it's 100 years. We don't know how that was. Mm-hmm. Now, one, for a decent portion of that, you would have had the original. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how long before the original wore out and they started making copies of it or whatever. But, you know, if you, you say there's 80 years in there, 60 years in there, whatever, when copies had to be made and we don't have any that old. When we do find copies that are even older, they're pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we unpack that in detail. And, mm-hmm. and so... I think we have very, very good reason to think that what we have is incredibly similar to what they wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, shockingly similar. And we talked about um, uh, Dan Wall, Dr. Dan Wallace at, at Dallas Theological Seminary, who's kind of the world's expert on some of these things. He has lots of YouTube conversations about that question, is what we have mm-hmm. what they wrote. So I encourage mm-hmm. anybody to go look at that. Now, yeah. But that's the context that's of, the context of where, where we talked where we've about approached this. it. Okay. That's right. And so if you if you have your copy of a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 8, technically it's John chapter 7, verse 53. And there will be a note there. If it's a modern version, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Mm-hmm. This story 
of Jesus catching a, or the woman being brought to Jesus who was caught in adultery um, is not in the most ancient copies of John. It, it is even sometimes in like Luke. It's just in ancient copies. It's just, it moves around a little bit in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that, that causes you to really be like, oh, is this an original? So for that reason, for example, I don't preach from it. Um, it may be totally original. It may mm-hmm. completely, this story may have happened just like this. And someone wrote it down and they didn't know where to include it. So they stuck it in the middle of John. Like we, we don't know. Um, and so I don't, it's, it's kind of sounds like something Jesus would do. I mean, there's yeah. nothing in this that's like out of character, but I wouldn't ever build any doctrine on it yeah. because it, it may not should be in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But again, because we have such good scholarship on the Bible, we know that mm-hmm. we, we have a note that tells us this, you know, it's a suspicious. So that's one reason I didn't go to it is because I don't ever go to it to teach yeah. any type of doctrine or anything like that. But let's have some fun with it. It's a fascinating little passage. Yeah. Um, so anybody want to read those 12 or so verses? Sure. He's I got it. I have it. Do you have it, Bryn? Yeah, but go ahead. Go f- no, you go for it. Uh, 8, 1 through 12? Or no, 11. Dude, she can barely breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I'm struggling a little I'm bit I'm so today. sorry. I'm no, so you're sorry. Fine. <laughs> All right, here we go. John 8. It's Christmas. She is great with child. It's a lot of biblical implications. The the round young wife over there. My my firstborn son do it Christmas. I know it. Very cool. Pretty dang cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, but if you want to read, I'm not going to explain. That's great. Sorry. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst of, or in the midst, they said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery." Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have uh, some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, "Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her." And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Wow. Such a great story. Okay. Now let's unpack this passage just a little bit because it is fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. So let's let's do our good old hermeneutics. Please. Okay. So let's start with the big questions. Where are they? Mount of Olives. Keep going. Temple. There you go. They're <laughs> in the temple. This is a weird thing to happen in the temple for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a lot of things immediately that make you scratch your head like, wait a minute, they're in the t- What part of the temple are they in? Mm-hmm. So apparently they're not in the men's section of mm-hmm. the temple because if we were Jews, also if we were Jews, we would understand like, all of this. Yes. Yes. You would immediately go like, "Wait, they're where?" This would be like a little bit like saying Jesus was in the Cowboys' locker room talking to the Cowboys. <laughs> like this is kind of a men's only area. I mean, especially if he's in. Apparently, he's not in the men's only area, or mm-hmm. it would be completely inappropriate for them to bring the woman in there. Yeah. They are allegedly, they have caught a woman in the act of adultery and have brought her straight to the temple. Have they not put her through a mikvah bath yet? They are breaking several commands to bring her into this setting. Mm. 
This is completely inappropriate. Everything about this is inappropriate. Like they are so out of line mm-hmm. with this whole thing is, is just like a, a Jewish audience would be like, wait, what? They're what? How, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. That's also part of what makes this passage a little questionable is this feels like it was written by someone who doesn't fully grasp the situation. Mm. Anyway. Interesting. So early in the morning is at the temple. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery again in the temple and placed her in the midst. So again, the people he's teaching, whoever it is, he's teaching, he's got these gather. He's got, um, people came and sat down and he was teaching them and mm. they come and drop this woman right in the middle of this crowd. Okay. Mm. And they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the language there is so clear. Like, essentially, they pulled her nude out of bed. Like, it is, this isn't like we heard she committed adultery. Yeah. That in the act. Well, we have a huge problem uh-huh. if she was caught in the act. What's the huge problem? <laughs> well, where's the other Yeah, half where's of the this other situation? party? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because we, because in our, in our unpacking of this, we talked about mm-hmm. like remember when we talked about rape laws and stuff yes and how important like both parties are held to a high standard mm-hmm. that's right and so and so right now so we it's have like why only is she one. the one that was brought yeah why her and where is the man okay mm-hmm. so already our questions are starting to pile up wait why are they bringing him here her here now in the temple now they're bringing her here she can't be here mm-hmm. she's unclean she cannot be in the temple like this mm-hmm. and we caught her in the act okay Where's the man? In the law of in the law, Moses, notice Moses, not God, Moses, and that's who they assigned this to, mm-hmm. commanded us to stone such a woman. He did not command them, by the way, they weren't around, but commanded us <laughs> to stone such a woman. What do you say? That's clearly again, this is meant to test him. This is just like the well, and it's do we pay taxes? Commanded us to stone such women. Like yeah. plur- like basically Oh yeah, that's right. Like not just this one, but it's like any, any, all, all the women, all the women, like, we're not going to, yeah. Stone such women, not men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause pretty sure you stone adulterers, male mm-hmm. or female in the, in the Hebrew mm-hmm. scripture. So, so they said this to test him. So I might have a charge to bring against him. Right. So then we get this great mystery, by the way, this, this is the only account of Jesus writing anything in the Bible hmm. um, right here. And it's in, and the, we don't know what it is. <laughs> well, that's there's so much, so many problems <laughs> with this. Oh, yeah. So he bit down and wrote it in the his finger on the ground. Okay. So the idea being like, so you have you both you both been on Temple Mount? You've not been. I've on not Temple been. Mount. It, okay. No. Sometimes. Is there a lot of dirt? That's on right. Temple you got Mount? invited, but but weren't able to come. Not yet. Not yet. All right. So nowadays you would be able to write your write something on the sort of. But they spray it off two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying it's clean. It's stone. Oh, right? okay. It's yes. solid. It's flagstone everywhere. Now it's mm-hmm. ancient flagstone. But in that time, it wouldn't have been ancient flagstone. It would have been brand new, fresh flagstone. That, by the way, was swept constantly. They kept it pure. And so even that, someone, I had heard a commentator say, like, why would there have been dust on the ground in the temple mm-hmm. that he could write in? That already implies a huge problem. Like that, that people aren't caretaking the temple properly. It's mm-hmm. early in the morning, by the way. We got that piece of information early on. It mm-hmm. certainly should not have been dusty yet. Mm. So I actually heard a, a a Christian with a lot of Jewish background just blast this. Like this was the big moment for him in this story. Mm. Is the fact that there was dust on the ground. T- 
totally unacceptable. Anyway, I'd, again, I would have no brain for that at all. Like, like yeah. correlating the state of the temple with the <clears throat> yeah. state of their hearts or Isn't something. Isn't that wild? Wow. So, and so as they continued to ask him, so they keep bugging him. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? While he's riding on the ground, he stands up and says, let him who without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. First, And also, by the way, there would not be any loose stones mm-hmm. on the temple. You'd have to take her somewhere to stone mm-hmm. her. And then once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to walk away one by one. And in this detail, beginning with the older ones. Mm. What? And, and incidentally, like, I'm not going to offer you any insight. I have no idea. Yeah. But clearly we're being given a hint as to what Jesus is doing. I think whoever wrote this story assumed his listeners would know exactly what Jesus wrote on the ground. Mm. Um, we have no clue. Like, we, we can't figure it out. I've got some guesses. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Also, strange. Didn't he have a whole bunch of people he was teaching a second ago? Yeah. How did Jesus get left alone with her? Is it just that the Pharisees and scribes left, mm-hmm. just the two of them? Because mm-hmm. the, the people that he was teaching, they weren't the ones bringing this acu- accusation against the woman. Right. So again, it's really, it feels, that feels strange too. So Jesus stood up and said to her, now this is a significant woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So which of the Pharisees and scribes served as a witness against her? Because you can't just stone somebody. Mm-hmm. You have to have multiple, at least two witnesses to someone's crime in order to do it. We don't see multiple people witness against her crime, by the way. And there would have been one person there who should have been there to declare what it was she did, which was the man she was committing adultery with. Mm -hmm. So again, we're missing a key witness in this whole little trial they're trying to create here. So Jesus, Jesus, all Jesus really does here is refuse to put her on trial Mm -hmm. because there needs to be two witnesses. So Jesus literally asks her, okay, where are the two witnesses against you? She looks around and says, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus wasn't there. He doesn't know she was caught in adultery. He has no idea that, whether they're telling the truth or not. Like he, in, in, this, in the legal sense, he was not there. He can't stone her. He can't even condemn her. He wasn't there. And there are no witnesses. And the witnesses yeah. are not there. Mm-hmm. And so they left. Why did they leave? Apparently because of what Jesus said. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. And because of what he wrote, and we don't know what that is. But it's a, so he tells her, don't don't sin anymore. Like he believes that she sinned because Mm -hmm. she's human and he knows everybody sins. So it's go and don't don't sin anymore. But he doesn't condemn her. Again, he would only be able to if he was a witness. So people have really taken this to like Jesus approves of her sin. Mm -hmm. He does not, not in in any sense. He, what he doesn't approve of is the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And so somehow I think it has to be that he's calling them out in something with what he mm-hmm. writes, because he then, even when he says, you know, he was out sin, cast the first stone. I don't, I don't know if he's, I heard a, a commentator, I read a commentator, I heard a preacher say that he started writing women's names mm-hmm. and it was their, the mistresses of the men who were present mm-hmm. and like, Oh, oops. Uh, hey, before you, do we need to share some other and he information? did it in age order. So then the right, older yeah, ones exactly. first. <laughs> yeah. Or, or he, it may be that he wrote, um, by the way, there's a great connection, a link passage um, from Jeremiah. 
Uh, to Jeremiah. which to which verse? Um, I'm gonna about to tell you. It oh, is sorry. no, no, you're fine. Jeremiah, come on, come on. There we go. Uh, seventeen thirteen. Do you need a bail? Mm-hmm. Um, seventeen thirteen. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the earth, as they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So it it could be that he's just written their sins or their lack of belief or their something. Yeah. Their sins or whatever in the in the dirt. Because it does seem like the point of this passage is more him calling out their hypocrisy than, Absolutely. than any type of excusing of her sin. Yeah. I don't um, think there's anything at all that indicates that he's excusing if she is an adulteress. Mm-hmm. I don't see anything in this passage that indicates he excuses her adultery. Mm-hmm. They're bringing him to him bringing her to him, asking him to apply the law. Mm-hmm. So he does. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he does. He demands the witnesses and there are no witnesses mm-hmm. when he demands it. And so the, what is he going to do? The law of Moses is very clear. You have to have two witnesses. So he's not even, I mean, A, he's calling it sin. Yep. But then he's not even letting her off the hook, like legally for the culture, technically. Mm-mm. So. Yep. So if anyone had stayed behind, if two of the men had stayed behind who claimed to have caught her in the act, yeah. And they had testified against her. Then what would we have done? We don't know because it yeah. didn't happen. Hmm. And what would have been his response? I don't know. But it, 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 I don't think it's that Jesus is necessarily always opposed to the death penalty or anything like that. I just think it's a, this yeah. passage is, one, it doesn't really apply very much to adultery. Yeah. Um, what it applies to is, the, is, I think, some form of hypocrisy on the part of these scribes and Pharisees. Yeah. Um, so like you said earlier, it's in, in line with his character, but to read heavily into it theologically, yeah. like as far as, oh, the older ones left because they were the wiser and understood their <laughs> sin for like, maybe taking, so that's all maybe too far might yep. be. Yeah. That's all from this passage. It's mostly supposition. And what would make that fun? I mean, it's fun to do the supposition like we just did with some of it, but even if we could figure out exactly the points being made in all of it, it would still be, he- I'd still be very hesitant to apply it because I don't think it probably yeah. is an original John passage. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Anyway, that's why it didn't turn up. <laughs> you want to do the the last question? Cause it's, a I quick think one. we can. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go for it. Um, the last question is after hearing the comment on the NIV. So I think, we joked about the NIV being the nearly inspired version right, at yes. some point talking about scripture. That wasn't actually us offering our opinion. It was referencing what sim- what they used to call it at seminary. Yes. But the question is, after hearing the comment on the NIV nearly inspired version, I'm curious as to what translation the three or four of you use or recommend for studying purposes. It's so, a great question. Yeah. Um, so one, the NIV is a pretty good one. Yeah. So don't we don't weren't. hear us uh, <laughs> trashing NIV, the the nearly inerrant or the nearly inspired or the whatever uh, version, which was a joke at seminary. All of the different versions are imperfect. Yeah. Because um, they're translating across thousands of years and into a foreign language and whatever. But um, I typically teach from the English Standard Version. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is when they're trying to decide between um, what they call dynamic equivalence, meaning when you find an idiom, uh, a biblical idiom, like we say, raining cats and dogs, there's lots of those in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, a good, a good example is like when we say um, like something happened in our heart mm-hmm. in the Hebrew, that's gut. 
their their word is they don't have, they don't think of the heart that way. They think of the gut is where those things happen. Mm-hmm. But so we have to in order for a Christian American Christians to understand it, you can't say gut. You have to say heart in order for us to wrap our hearts around that, <laughs> uh, or our guts, yeah. um, or our brains. But um, but that that's a I, I like the way ESV does it when it comes to studying purposes, because it tends to be a little more literal. Mm-hmm. It's more likely, I don't think it does for gut, but it's more likely to say gut rather than to take the idiom. Mm-hmm. Now that costs you because then there may be understanding that you miss, but in study purposes, I've got the margin to do that. I'm reading commentaries anyway yeah. on the passage. Um, but for reading, I'm a, I don't know about you. I'm a huge fan of whatever version you will read. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is there I mean, a certain one you use? Um, I think I grew up, mostly reading the NIV and then switch primarily to the ESV. But, um, I mean, there's, I think it's helpful. I think a lot of times when you're studying, it's helpful to pick like a couple, even three or four and read because the danger for me. And I think a lot of people is when you start reading any, like reading the Bible in the same version every time, sometimes it's easy to like glaze over things or skip because you're, used to the way it sounds. Does that make sense? And so I think it's helpful, whatever your preferred um, version is to, to switch around just to bring a freshness to scripture. I think we have talked about how you have to be careful with certain versions that are more um, like, what are they called? A paraphrase. More like a paraphrase. Like a message. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. the message or something. Not that it's evil to read the message, no, but gosh, it's no. just different than a direct translation. It's right. me, it, someone's retelling of scripture, essentially, right. in their own words. So you just have to be careful with drawing theological yeah. you know, beliefs from it. I don't want to oversimplify, but when you have a paraphrase, usually what that means is they took an English translation and rewrote the English translation from an English translation. Right. Now, Peterson's more of a scholar than that, and he did much more than just that, but right. for for um, for the message. But whereas a translation is actually going back to the original language and retranslating each phrase, each word, each right. paragraph, each whatever. Um, and so, like, the Living Bible was a paraphrase, but the New Living Bible, if I remember correctly, is a translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, so. And so I'm a big... Uh, I, I love... I just, I love all of it. Mm -hmm. And I just think where you have to be careful is if you come to a difficult passage or a difficult concept, don't just read one version and then run with it, study it. And I even encourage people, there's several of these now online for free. And Bible Hub is just my favorite just because I've gotten used to it. But there's Mm -hmm. several podcast, I mean, well, podcasts too, but several websites and Bible software that you can get that will compare. Like Blue Letter Bible is Mm -hmm. another one. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of them that have those that you can actually see commentary, see translational decision-making, that kind of stuff made. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bummer now that I think about this person is asking for the, what the three or four of us use and Colson's already left and Chris wasn't here today. Yeah. So, um, we might can get them to throw in their opinions at the I next, know I next remember one as them well. both reading from a- ESV and NIV, but I think there's yeah. another one that Chris shared uses. I can't remember. Does he use Holman? I feel like maybe, maybe he's used Holman at times. But honestly, most modern English translations are, they're just fantastic. Right. Um, You're not going to be misled by them. They're not going to be wrong or in error. But that's um, also a good point of some of the older translations. They're still translations, but we have more manuscripts to translate from now than we did when the old, old translations came out. King James being the most famous. Yeah. We have several 
ancient manuscripts since the King James was written that have mm-hmm. been discovered that help us have a more accurate right. picture. Again, however, the King James Version, if you can read it and understand it, yeah. it's, there's nothing wrong with it as a translation. It, 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 all of them have, they all have to make decisions and therefore they all have some flaws. Yeah. Um, uh, just as far as the translational stuff goes and difference of opinion. That's why you've got professors who will, you know, and, and preachers who will get up on Sunday and say, hey, the, the root word is this, but maybe a better translational word would be this. Well, mm-hmm. if they're so brilliant, why aren't they the ones out making Bibles? Well, I have the same thing. It's because I'm reading different commentaries and, and stuff, and, and they all disagreed with one another sometimes about should this word be translated this or that. Yeah. Um, a, a fun one I just read was the idea of, I'm, I'm unclear on whether or not there were apples in the Middle East. Yeah. And if that was a big deal. Were there, and, and it turns out there were, they found evidence of apples going way, way, way back. But did they grow there or were they a rare delicacy that, you know, got brought in or whatever? Yeah. Because I'm real curious about the fact that a couple of times we're referred to as the apple of God's eye. Yeah. And and that just doesn't seem likely to me that, that that's such an American phrase. Yeah. And so I looked it up and the word apple can just as easily mean pupil or student. Oh, interesting. Well, which would make a lot more sense in the in the context of the Middle East that yeah. like you're my favorite student. Yeah. Like oh, cool. that makes more sense than the apple of my eye. Um, and we're freaking someone out there right now who's going, but didn't Adam and Eve eat an apple in the garden? Like, just so you can go look. We don't know what ap- <laughs> we don't know what fruit it was. Yes. Um, and but this also goes back to our conversations that we've talked about, like you mentioned earlier, translating scripture and right. the authenticity of scripture. And so if this is scary to someone, yep. those are good episodes to reference of unpacking that more Yes, of different interpretations don't have to mean that it's, it's scary or it's no. not dependable. So I find great comfort in it myself. So yeah, very good. Well, this has been, great. this has been great. Um, Hey, if you've got questions, um, you know, we don't want to, I don't know that we're going to run out of topics or headings, but you know, we're going to move into a new season soon, and uh, hopefully we'll be wrapping up our old one uh, very quickly as well, very soon as well. And then now that we've done the, the cute question and response or question and answer session. And so um, send in questions, though, if you still have them, because that helps guide us in our conversation as well. So God bless. Thanks much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reconstructed Faith. If you enjoyed what you heard or were challenged, please leave us a review will help other people find us. If you have questions or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, shoot me an email at info at southspring.org. Reconstructed Faith is a resource of South Spring Baptist Church. Remember, don't give up, trust God, search for answers.